If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. It hasn't been quite a year since we were going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, so, but we, it's, I think much of what I will say today will seem familiar to you. It'll almost be a review. But I want to look specifically at the events of uh, Palm Sunday, recorded here in Mark 11. Um, and then sort of review the whole Gospel of Mark as it leads to this particular point. Let's read the first 10 verses. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell them, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside the, in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them. Too, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Chapter 11 marks a shift in the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point, the gospel has been thematic, hasn't been chronological. It does start with John the Baptist, but then the events that follow aren't necessarily in the chronological order until now we come at the end of chapter 10 and now in chapter 11 and through the rest of the gospel. And it opens with what we call Palm Sunday. And people may wonder, why is it called Palm Sunday? Particularly if you read Mark's account, it isn't clear. It is only John in the Gospel of John who talks about palm branches. Uh, This is in John 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. It's interesting, why did they take palm branches? One could argue that's what was nearby. But historically, in the Mediterranean region, the palm or the palm frond was a symbol of victory, a symbol of peace and eternal life. It was, yes, we have won, a symbol of triumph. Let's back up a bit. At the end of chapter 10, Jesus is in Jericho. Jericho, by the way, is in fact 846 feet below sea level. It is the lowest city in the world in terms of uh, its ge- geography, its sea levelness, if you wish. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. But there is, in fact, a confrontation. Then they came to Jericho. This is chapter 10, verse 46. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, son of Bartimaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. Uh, 
When they heard that it was Jesus, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, "Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me." Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, "Son of David, have mercy on me." Jesus stopped and said, "Call him." So they called to the blind man, "Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you." Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. When we went through this passage, I, I spoke about this. I was like, what do, you, what do you think I want? Son of David, have mercy on me. Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So now Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. It's time for Passover. You have all the pilgrims that are going uh, up to Jerusalem. Jesus is with his disciples, and now this man, uh, Bartimaeus, is going with them. As I said, Jericho is over 800 feet below sea level. The city of Jerusalem is, in fact, 2,500 feet above a sea level. It's a, a change of over 3,300 feet. I mean, you go from 846 to 2,500. It is a climb, and that's why we have the Songs of Ascents that Titus has spoken to us about, uh, Psalm 120 to 135. People have heard about this man, Jesus. They're on their way to Jerusalem. They're going to commemorate that great miracle, that great redemptive story when the angel of death passed over the children of Israel because they had put blood on the doorpost. They're going to Jerusalem where God has put his name, where the temple represents his presence, where people go to sacrifice. They don't sacrifice anywhere else. It's only in Jerusalem. They would remember stories of freedom and hope. So as we read, as they come near, Jesus, in fact, sends two disciples ahead and and gives them instructions that they're going to go to the next town. There they're going to find a colt tied up. They're going to take it. And uh, if anyone asks them, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it. And there's something else. The Lord will return it. It The Lord isn't stealing this colt. He's borrowing it. He's going to ride on it into the city but it, in fact, will be returned to him. And so it unfolded the way that he had said. And as he is now riding this colt, people began to put, John tells us, palm branches. Others put cloaks on the road. And they begin to shout, I would think almost singing, verses from Psalm 118. Hosanna. They are... I would say almost delirious with joy at the coming of this one, Jesus. There's a problem though, and if you look at the worship guide, so what people got wrong on Palm Sunday. Now, one of the things, it's, it's great, but it, it trips us up sometimes. We live after the fact. And so we tend to project back. We know what's going to happen after Palm Sunday, all the events, and then we know about Easter. Okay? And so we tend to project, I would say, the joy of Easter back to Palm Sunday, and that's, that's not right. We imagine that the crowd knew what was going on. 
that here comes the one who is going to suffer and die for them and pay for their sins. That's what they were thinking. And if that's what we think, then we are in fact wrong. They did not think that. They thought this man was in fact going to restore the throne of David, throw the Romans out, and Israel would once again be a great nation. Why did they think that? Well, a number of reasons. One is that was the great hope. They'd been under the Romans for almost a century. They didn't like it. Uh, They wanted to be liberated. They wanted to be free. But there's something else. Some of them may have remembered, many of us do not, that about two centuries before, a very similar event had taken place. That is to say, there was a Jewish leader who had defeated the foreign occupiers. When Alexander the Great died, uh, what he had conquered was divided up into four, and the one area, the Seleucids had the area around Jerusalem. Uh, They were, I would say, uh, not only oppressive, but a wicked people, sacrificing pigs in the temple area, putting up idols in the temple area. But then along came a man named Judas Maccabeus, and he defeated the Seleucids. He brought freedom to the people of Israel. Okay? And then he entered into Jerusalem and people put down palm branches on the road in front of him as he entered into Jerusalem victoriously. They sang hymns of praise. Jerusalem had been liberated. And this seems like deja vu all over again. This happened before. This is what Jesus is doing. He's coming into Jerusalem just like Judas Maccabeus did. And he's going to free us from those cursed Romans. They're not thinking a suffering Messiah. They're not thinking that in five days this man will be crucified by the Romans. They're thinking this is the man who will defeat them. And so they sing Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They didn't understand. They thought, in fact, this was political victory that they were going to achieve. I think this is important. Because oftentimes we are really troubled. How is it that Jesus could be welcomed in such a way and five days later the people are going to turn against him and want him to be put to death. That's what they didn't understand. And you might say, well, Damon, how do you, why, why do you say that? How can you say that they did not understand? Well, let's go back and review a bit in the book, the Gospel of Mark. The disciples did not understand The 12 men who were with him day after day for three years, they didn't understand. And you imagine now that the crowds, that they somehow have theological clarity and they understand what's going on. Simply not the case. There are two sets of incidents that I want to remind you of. And in both sets, we find the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand the two, well, the first one is two different incidents in which Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people. Um, the first is in chapter 8. It's after the feeding of the 5,000, miraculously, Jesus has fed thousands of people based on just a few loaves and a few fish. 
Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountain to pray, a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. For they had not understood about the, about the leaven. Their hearts were hardened. What is it? What is there to understand about the loaves? I mean, why would you say that their hearts were hardened? This is a rather harsh... I mean, these are the guys who are with Jesus. They have hardened hearts. Um, They had seen him calm the storm. They had cast out evil spirits themselves. They had healed the sick. They have just witnessed the miraculous feeding of 5,000. Why didn't I understand? Look, several things. First of all, in chapter 4, we are told he did not say anything to them without using a parable. And this, as we've seen, doesn't simply mean what he said, but what he did. That his act of feeding 5,000 was, in fact, a parable in and of itself. It pointed to an important truth, something that they failed to understand. See, the problem is it isn't a matter simply of intellect, but a matter of faith. In a sense, the disciples did not have that faith. They had seen it, they had participated in it, but somehow it just did not break through to their thinking. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, the one thing that we saw when we studied it is that it isn't the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the Herodians and all those guys, they aren't the only ones who don't get it. His disciples don't get it. They don't understand In essence, they are not any different than his opponents. Jesus has come into the world, the Father has sent him, and the disciples don't get it. They failed to recognize his unique character. They failed to see his work in the context of the Old Testament. Stop and think a minute, and we talked about this before. Just think. You've got a large crowd. They're in the wilderness. They don't have food to eat. Food is miraculously provided for them. Does that ring any bells? Does that sound familiar at all? That's Israel in the wilderness when God provided manna for them. Jesus provided for the 5,000 as well. And the disciples had said, they distributed the food. I mean, they actually handled the food. And yet they did not understand. And they failed to understand that the Lord who provides food for his people also rules the seas. Let me read to you from two Psalms. One is Psalm 104. How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And there the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. These all look to you to give them their food in the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. 
And then in Psalm 95, and when we went through this, I remember telling you, I love Psalm 95 until we get to the last verses. And it always, if I could edit, I'd, I would take those verses out because the first part is wonderful. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. I want to put a big period there and say, that's it. Let's, that's the end of Psalm 95. Um, but it continues. And now consider it in light of the disciples after the feeding of the 5,000. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, when your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. God had miraculously provided manna for the children of Israel, but they ran out of water. And they're like, Moses, that's why you brought us out here, so we could die of thirst. God had provided for them, and for some reason their hearts were hard, hardened. They didn't believe that God could, in fact, provide water for them. And he did. But this is exactly like the disciples. Jesus had miraculously fed 5,000. They didn't understand. After the feeding of 4,000, this is a second event. This is in chapter 8. The disciples came and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He's just fed 4,000 people, by the way. They want a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them and got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full, a basket full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? It's an interesting question. Do you still not understand? I think we could, we could argue that in a sense, we still don't understand. But it's not about understanding or misunderstanding. You know, it starts out, they get in the boat. He's just fed 4,000 people. They have seven basketfuls that left over. But somehow they only managed to have one loaf to take with them. There are 12 men and Jesus, so 13 men. Uh, and one loaf isn't going to cut it. It's not going to be enough. Okay, And so Jesus tells them, be careful. He warns them, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
yeast, bread. Okay, there's a connection there. But the disciples make the wrong connection. It's like, oh, we forgot to bring bread. That's what he's upset about. That's why he's warning us about this. And it wasn't that at all. It wasn't that at all. It was the faulty teaching of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. See, for the Pharisees, it was traditionalism. They had their rules and regulation quite apart from Scripture. And we saw that earlier in chapter 7. They had replaced God's rule, God's kingdom for their own. That's why they cannot accept Jesus. They want some miraculous sign. He's just done it, but that's not good enough because they have their vision of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. The Herodians also have a vision. It's quite different. They're secularists. Okay? The Pharisees are religious fanatics, but the Herodians, they belong to the party of Herod, and they think that, in fact, Herod will be the one to bring in this kingdom of David and drive out the Romans. They're both wrong. They're both wrong. And Jesus tells the disciples, be careful. Don't think that tradition is the answer. Don't think that politics is the answer. The kingdom of God is quite different than the way the disciples imagined it to be. And it was very different from the way the Pharisees and the Herodians imagined it to be. The disciples don't get it, though. And Jesus quotes from the book of Jeremiah, um, you have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. And then Jesus says, don't you remember? Have you already forgotten? It's a recurring theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. And this is important because do we imagine that up to chapter 11, people don't get it. They don't get it. And then suddenly we come to chapter 11. Somebody flips the switch and they all understand, oh, this is the suffering Messiah. Jesus is coming to die on the cross. No, they did not get it. They failed to recognize the unique character of Jesus as the Messiah. They failed to recognize the true nature of the kingdom of God. And they failed to see his work in the context of Old Testament writings. Their conclusion, as is often ours in our lives, I wouldn't do it that way. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. Like the disciples, we might imagine that we have a better vision of how God's work in the world should be, how the kingdom of God, what it should look like in our world. And like the disciples, we would be wrong because we do not understand. Somehow, like the disciples, we're guilty of trying or thinking to shape God's working in the world to fit our own expectations. We tend to follow our own expectations as to what God should do. It's, this is in my notes. I hesitate to mention it, but I, I do want to mention it. You know, one of the evangelistic tools that is used, uh, has been used for some time, is to say to people, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I don't want to argue with that, but I think when people hear that, they think, oh, my plans, God will, in fact, fulfill my plans for my life. And that's not the way it is. So the feedings, they don't understand. The second set of events, the second series, are when Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to die. Okay, We're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be put to death. 
and then on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. Three times he tells them this. The first time is in chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And the context is important because right before this, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? You know, have you taken a poll? Who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. It's a powerful statement. It seems to be a statement of faith. You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So that's the context. This politically charged statement, you are the Christ. In other words, you're the one that's going to deliver us from these terrible Romans, from any foreign occupying powers. You are the Christ. The disciples thought that they had found him. The Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of Israel that was to be. Then Jesus goes in a very different direction. He then, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. No more parables, okay? He spoke plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? <laughs> Rebuking the Lord Jesus, saying, listen, this is not going to happen. We're not going to let this happen. But Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, what you're saying is diabolical. It's satanic. I have told you what is going to happen. And you don't believe me. Jesus tells them that it is necessary that he be put to death. He must suffer. It's something that must happen. And that he would be rejected. Jesus reveals what is going to happen. And it is a very clear statement. No more parables. You know, what could this possibly? He's very, very direct with them. And they don't get it. It happens again in chapter 9. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him. In the first time he says he's going to die, Peter rebukes him. He's like, not going to happen. The second time, yeah. They don't get it. They don't understand. But they're afraid to ask him about it. Yeah, first he had talked about the necessity. The Son of Man must suffer. Now the second announcement is, in fact, a certainty. He is going to be betrayed. I am going to be betrayed. But the disciples didn't understand it. No more rebuking. It's silence. They don't get what it is that he's trying to say. I think it's possible, if I could cut the disciples some slack, that they might have thought, oh, this is another parable. This is another story. 
that somehow you're trying to convey a truth in the, in the context of a narrative. Mark tells us that Jesus was, he spoke plainly to them, but I think maybe the disciples thought, oh, this is one of those story things that he's been doing, you know, these past three years, and so we shouldn't take this literally. This isn't actually going to happen. We don't understand it. The third time this happened is in chapter 10. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This is the, the most complete uh, telling of what is going to happen to him. There's seven parts to it that, in fact, he would be betrayed. He would be condemned to death. Uh, The Gentiles, they would hand him over because the Jews can't put anyone to death by law. So the Romans have to do that. Uh, They will mock him and spit on him, flog him. They will kill him. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. It is the most detailed foretelling of what's going to happen. It is worth noting that in all three episodes, Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised from the dead. All three cases, okay? And yet, they did not understand. Now, let's go to chapter 11. And Jesus is on a colt, and he's coming into Jerusalem, and people are throwing down the palm branches. And what are the disciples thinking? Ah, it's just a parable. It's not going to happen. How can it happen? I mean, Jesus is so popular. In modern parlance, he's trending. You know, he's, he's the man. I mean, look, look at all these people shouting. Yeah, all that, that crazy, maybe that was a parable about something that, that can't possibly come to pass. The crowd is shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, part of what Jesus was doing is we, we read about it in Zechariah, written hundreds of years before. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here comes Jesus on a colt, and people are like, Zachariah, here it is. Salvation has come for us. Now, when we say salvation today, we usually think, get your ticket punched, you're not going to hell, you're going to heaven. For the Jewish people, salvation meant political salvation, liberation, being freed from the politically oppressive Roman government. And so when they shout Hosanna, which means, O Lord, save us now. This is it. This is the man. This is the one who is going to deliver us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They're thinking purely politically. They're thinking political salvation. Not, oh, this man is going to be put to death for our sins. 
It doesn't occur to us. This is how they thought the story was going to go. Remember Judas Maccabeus 200 years before? Now Jesus of Nazareth, he is going to drive out the Romans and cleanse the temple. But they were wrong. They had, in fact, quoted from Psalm 118, which is traditionally seen as a messianic psalm. It's about the coming of the Messiah. Um, let me read to you part of it. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. That's Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. I don't know if you know Psalm 118, um, but I skipped a verse. I read verse 21 and then verses 23 to 27, but I skipped verse number 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. In other words, salvation is coming through someone who has been rejected. But on that day that people are delirious, they are thrilled. Here comes our salvation. And again, they're not thinking we're going to heaven. They're thinking we're getting rid of the Romans. The people that day failed to recognize what was happening. I think all these centuries later, we're still failing to recognize. At least in my uh, NIV, it says the triumphal entry. Triumph, victory. That's not what it is at all. Some years ago on Palm Sunday, we considered Luke's account of this. Let me just read to you what Luke writes about the triumphal entry or what happened afterwards. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, this is, I guess, before, not after, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Not politics, okay? Political salvation. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I submit to you that this is not a day of celebration, certainly not a day of political celebration. Yeah, the people celebrated, but based on a false idea of what was happening. They had their own story, their own narrative in their minds. This is what's happening. Our deliverance has come. Deliverance from sin? No. Something worse. Deliverance from the Romans. They failed to understand Jesus told his disciples at least three times in Mark's account that he was going to be put to death and that he would rise from the dead. Did the disciples forget that, that Palm Sunday? 
Did they think it wasn't going to happen? Oh, that Jesus is such a pessimist, always a downer, you know, talking about dying and stuff. Look, the crowd is with us. There's one incident in the Old Testament that reminds me that I think is the picture of what happened on Palm Sunday. And we studied it several weeks ago when Abraham is told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. They walk for three days to get to the region of Moriah, which is where Jerusalem is. They walk there. Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is that same journey. He's walking to the place of sacrifice. He's riding on a donkey. He's going to the place of sacrifice. He knows he will be put to death. We should not forget that. This week, we remember the events that led to his death, the betrayal, being abandoned by his disciples, being arrested and illegal trials taking place. He's condemned to death. He will, in fact, be crucified by the Romans, and he will be buried in another man's tomb. But it begins with the crowd shouting, let's not be distracted. Let's not get caught up in the Fuhrer. Um, they think a different story than what Jesus intends. They are rejoicing, but for the wrong reasons. Jesus knows what is going to happen. Jesus has told his disciples what is going to happen. He knows what he has to do. And what Jesus suffered, what we remember this week, he did for us. He did for his people. Let's pray together. Our Father, ever since our mother Eve was told that we'd be like gods, we have tried to fulfill that prophecy. We imagine that we know how the story is supposed to go. We imagine that we get to define things. We read scripture, but somehow we don't always understand. The Jews read Psalm 118 about salvation, but they took it in a very different direction. What a troubling day it must have been for Jesus, for the crowds to imagine that this is a great event, not knowing that he will be put to death. He knew, and yet he went. He went willingly. And he did it on our behalf. Our knees weaken at the thought that the Son of God would give his life that we might have life. But he did precisely that. In the coming days of this week, may we in a particular way remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. We do look ahead to Easter, a time of rejoicing. 
But before that rejoicing, there is sorrow and there is pain, there is death. What Jesus endured on our behalf. We thank you, we are grateful. And we ask Holy Spirit that you would give us understanding. May we not be like that crowd that first Palm Sunday. But may we see that in fact the Lord Jesus has come to give us life, his life. We thank you for your love, Father. We give thanks. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.